if you don't sort of do the Middle East, it does you. And it can knock you off your sort of long game agenda. It is the week of May 18th, and welcome to episode 80 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we're breaking the format. In our first segment, Les Munson hosts two short interviews with Simone Ledeen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, and Brian Katulis, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, on the current fighting happening between Israel and Hamas. Our second segment will be a conversation on Central America policy with Les, Simone, Rob Walker, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, and myself, Grant Haver, NSI Policy Program Manager. Now, on with the show. Brian, one of the things uh, the Biden administration did early on was restore U.S. assistance to the Palestinians. The president has been more willing to talk about a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, certainly than President Trump was. How come those things haven't led to a better situation on the ground? Well, uh, because the comp- uh, the situation on the ground is quite complicated. Um, first complicated uh, amongst Palestinians themselves, because a lot of what uh, has happened here is the result of a leadership vacuum and a dysfunctional political situation that actually contributed to those elections that were supposed to be happening roundabout right now um, for Palestinians. Those were canceled by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. And that's essential. It's important here. The crisis in Jerusalem need not have happened, but Hamas as a militant group exploited it uh, using violence to try to gain political advantage. Uh, in the intra-Palestinian dispute. And I think it's important in part because my own personal history. I used to live in the West Bank in Gaza uh, in the 1990s, working on democracy programs way back when to try to help boost Palestinians. So the reason why you don't see much progress here is first, there's a challenge with the situation inside of uh, the West Bank and Gaza. There's a challenge with Israeli politics, which to this day is still trying hard to cobble together a new government. Um, and there's, you know, no light at the end of the tunnel here for the dispute between Israelis and Palestinians. So tremendous amount of dysfunction and complications. And even the helpful moves that I think Biden has taken, which are tiptoes and minor, minor steps in the right direction compared to where we were under Trump, um, it's going to take a lot more for U.S. diplomatic engagement to actually matter than than simply sending an envoy or doing a couple of speeches and making a statement. So the administration did send an envoy, right? They sent a deputy assistant secretary of state, which is not exactly a high level person. What are those steps the Biden administration should be taking to play a more constructive role here? Well, first, the immediate is the obvious, which is to work for a uh, ceasefire uh, and immediate conflict resolution. Nobody's going to be thinking rationally and thinking about how to address complicated disputes like Jerusalem until uh, the, the shooting stops. And the shooting's coming from many different directions, but primarily it's Israel and Hamas. So, you know, I know Hadi Amr, he's actually one of the best you can have in the field to work with Palestinians on economic development. But um, if the U.S. really wants to have more of an impact here, it's got to send uh, higher level folks and people who deal with uh, tough issues like terrorism, security, and making Israelis and Palestinians alike feel secure. So conflict resolution and ceasefire is number one. Two, there needs to be, uh, to get there, you need to actually, what I call it, have a diplomatic surge. Uh, some of the actors like Hamas are actors that U.S. diplomats simply are barred by U.S. law from from contacting directly. So you got to work by, with, and through 
some of these countries like Egypt, Qatar, Turkey, all of which we have complicated relationships sometimes, but they know these actors very, very well. And they're also countries, by the way, that ain't going to get invited to a democracy summit organized by the Biden administration. So the, the, the call of the day, I think, is for pragmatism to get to that ceasefire. There's longer term things that I actually think need to happen that weren't happening under Trump, didn't really happen much under Obama that I'm happy to talk about. But that's the immediate is to stop the fighting and then get 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 to some sort of functional talking amongst the Palestinians and amongst the Israelis, but then also between the two parties as well. How much of what we're seeing is related to the fact that the Biden administration like the Trump administration before it, is pulling back from the region. It's kind of going in fits and, and fits and starts. A little bit of mystery about this, a little bit of mystery about that, but we're definitely coming out of Afghanistan. There's a Syria policy review going on. It's clear that the U.S., over time, both parties doesn't want to be as involved in the Middle East as it was a couple of decades ago, for example. How much of what we're seeing in the conflict on the ground and these, as you point out, very complex relationships we have with these different countries is because the U.S. is pulling back? It's a good bit of it. Uh, and it's not a new dynamic even under Trump. I would go back to uh, the Obama administration trying to adopt what I think was a fantasy land approach of we're going to like stay above the fray and try to pull back from Iraq and we're going to do diplomacy with Iran and there'll be an equilibrium magically that will appear. And what you see actually happen in the region uh, in some really, really awful cases like Syria, but other more subtle cases like Egypt is you've got uh, a, a conflict uh, for power and a, a competition for power and influence across the region. And the region is uh, different actors, different countries, but as well as sort of uh, political forces are testing the limits of their power. That's exactly what's happening right now. And, you know, as as many people would like to pretend that it's easy for the U.S. to simply pivot to another geographic region of the world. Um, what we're seeing right now in the last week is President Biden actually having his Michael Corleone moment on the Middle East. The Godfather 2, just when I thought it was out, I get pulled back in. And he's trying to resist that tension. He, he resisted that tension uh, in the first 100 days when he made, uh, quite rightly, the pandemic here at home and the economic situation a top priority, followed by China and climate in the world. But any sort of fair read of the last 10 years of U.S. Uh, engagement in the Middle East is if you send sort of the wrong signals that we're out, out of here and we're, we're, we're leaving, then a number of different actors will test the limits of their power. And that's what's happening. For those who've argued for a so-called policy of restraint and disengagement from the Middle East, this is what you get. You get a, a conflict that actually could spiral out of control in Gaza. And I'm not saying we, we need directly militarily intervene here, but I'm saying that we need actually have a clearer diplomatic approach that is above the deputy assistant secretary of state level. So, Brian, it's hard not to think about the negotiations that are going on with Iran in Vienna uh, concurrently to this conflict. What's your take on any kind of link, direct or indirect, between a revived JCPOA or something like it and the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis? I think different. Different advocacy groups, and there's a lot of foreign policy advocacy from the left and the right these days in America, like to draw uh, uh, linkages that are quite stronger than they actually are, or sometimes try to deny those linkages. It's, it's actually quite sort of nuanced and important. Yes, Iran actually 
supports actively a number of extremist groups that want to take the region back a thousand years and then some, and they want to upset the apple cart. So the the team that's gone in there, uh, the Biden team, I actually am encouraged that they're trying to use diplomacy as a tool in Vienna. Um, I'm encouraged that they're trying to get back to some semblance of an agreement on the nuclear front, but. Um, I also am a little worried that they are looking at this in isolation of these regional security dynamics. And it's hard to do what I'm, I'm trying to say here, which is you got to keep your eye on the both balls at the same time, that there are elements within Iran who I think will seek to exploit the instability, not only in Gaza, but in the northern border of Israel with Lebanon, as we see today, um, to their advantage. They, they will do things to actually try to put us back on our back heels. And I appreciate the arguments that you can't deal with all of these issues all at once, the nuclear issues and the regional insecurity. It's hard to tackle all of them at once. But one of the key lessons for me from 2015 till 2018, or uh, whenever we left the JCPOA, is that without incremental progress on the regional stabilization front, meaning reassuring partners that we've got their back, you're not really going to have a sustainable environment for a longer and stronger nuclear agreement with Iran. That that architecture of, you know, you can't just do diplomacy in isolation of very uh, unstable regional security conditions when you're regional partners like Israel or some of the Gulf states or even Jordan and Egypt feel unstable. So you got to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. Tall order for a Biden administration that, again, quite rightly wants to focus on America's revival at home and a foreign policy the middle class can support and yada, 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 and also compete with China. But as I think Obama found out in his second term, if you don't sort of do the Middle East, it does you and it can knock you off your sort of long game agenda. Let's talk about something you alluded to, which is the the change in the relationship between Israel and the Sunni Arab states in the region, which, you know, there's some question, was that because of Trump's brilliant diplomacy? Was it because those parties saw the U.S. pulling out and they were kind of natural allies against mutual enemies? Um, I tend towards the latter, frankly, but I wouldn't totally deny the former either. But that that those so the Abraham Accords that were the you know, kind of the tactile result of that phenomenon, wherever it came from, how much can that play a constructive role here? Like, it does seem like these these power dynamics are changing. Israel has new friends it didn't have before. Is that a route to a better outcome here? I think it could be, but uh, I agree with your sort of assessment that a lot of what transpired in the region that resulted in the normalization accords, including the Abraham Accords, uh, was were tectonic plates that had been shifting for a long time. So much of what you saw on the White House lawn in September of last year when Trump uh, had the big ceremonies was a lot of the rooster taking credit for the dawn, uh, meaning that the sun was coming up in any case. And they took advantage by, you know, doing certain things and making certain promises of U.S. policy, which have largely remained in place, but um, haven't yet sort of yielded what I think is their great potential. And their great potential, as somebody who worked uh, on the ground with Palestinians, in my view, is that, you know, these, these countries that are actually opening up uh, the, the, their relations with Israel, and I, I would have called them the coming out of the closet uh, accords, because, you know, feeling comfortable with these relationships that you've had underneath the table for, for, for years, and in some cases, decades, and just, just being confident in that relationship is a good thing. But the many of these countries that signed the accords, and then those that are still sitting on the sidelines, like Saudi Arabia, they definitely need to see progress towards Palestinian dignity, self-determination, and just basic decency. Um, the, the hit on the Abraham Accords is that this was viewed by many as a bypass road around the Palestinians. 
I understand that why that's the case, because that's how the Kushner sort of Greenblatt uh, David Friedman team under Trump uh, largely, I think, argued it in, internally. And what I think was their fundamental strategic mistake, uh, the Trump team on, on this front, was a maximum pressure policy on Palestinians, meaning cutting off aid as well as isolating them and not making them part of the conversation and trying to make them irrelevant. Not going to happen. It's not going to work. So the, to answer your question about moving forward, uh, U.S. policy under Biden would be wise to actually cultivate deeper trust and confidence with some of these countries, all of these countries, in part because not just because they're a potential big ATM um, to, to fund sort of Palestinian development, but in part because they can play a much more constructive role if the U.S. is sort of guiding them in that direction. And the last thing I'd say here is the challenge of all of this actually comes from the, the dream palace of sort of the far left in this country which posited for a couple of years that we can leave the region and retrench back home and we could actually kick our partners in the shins and try to tell them how to do that by downgrading ties with them. But then, oh, by the way, we're going to ask them to step up and do more and be constructive. And then magically we'll get to a two state solution or sometimes it's a confederation or sometimes it's a one state solution. That broader formula, which sounded okay early in the Democratic presidential primaries for some, didn't win, is not practical, and actually is not likely to go anywhere, uh, particularly with this Israeli government and as where we started, this, the complicated scenes in the Palestinian side. What you need is a much more steadier diplomacy first approach uh, that, that is higher level than what we have right now that's backed by regional security and uses these partners in a good way to help Palestinians improve their lives. Brian, it is, it's possible that that dream palace, uh, maybe you're seeing it from a different direction, but it exists on the far right as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't mean to be critical uh, again. And I think a lot of this, it, honestly, there, I think there's, a, there's still a strong, sensible center um, from the left and right in terms of people who actually speak the language, live there, follow the region. They get that nobody's really going to, the U.S. is not likely to be able to fully disengage from the region. Um, um, and, but th there is, th that's where it sort of marries up. And we've done some polling on this is that, yeah, you know, these are louder, more organized on both the right and the left voices that try to shape the narrative, but it, it's still like maybe 15, 20% of the population. Most, most, most people in the debate are like, you know, this is tough. We got to sort of uh, double down in terms of different types of engagement, because it would be stupid to sort of continue doing what we're doing for the last 20 years. But yeah, there's, there is definitely sort of an ideological approach coming from the right as well that simply says, well, you know, certain countries can do no wrong and that we shouldn't pressure them and things like this. And this is where, again, we need to actually just have a more balanced relationship that uses America's leverage with, with uh, our friends and, and partners alike to help them achieve a better stability, you know? Ryan, this was great. Thanks for doing it with us. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Simone, there are some critics who say that the current situation between Israel and the Palestinians means that President Trump's diplomatic success with the Abraham Accords, the peace deals between Israel and four Arab Sunni nations, was ephemeral. What is your assessment? I think that, first of all, it's important to note that one of the major motivators for this wave of rocket attacks by Hamas and other Palestinian terrorists is the fact that they, they want to undermine the Abraham Accords. Um, I think the, the narrative that you laid out is, is false. The Abraham Accords are not reversible. There is no going back. 
the whole point of the Abraham Accords was to normalize relations between Israel and the, and some uh, Sunni Arab states and not to continue to allow Palestinian intransigence to hold these relationships hostage. This is exactly uh, what what ended up playing out. And the Palestinians, or at least their their corrupt leadership, got sidelined. Um, and, you know, tragically, the Palestinians who could have benefited profoundly from the accords ended up with nothing. So, you know, now, despite all this rhetoric and propaganda, nobody has backed out of the Abraham Accords and the various associated agreements. And that's really an indicator to me of how strong these ties really are. Um, I think that the Abraham Accords, and it's important to note, they were not meant to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issues, but, you know, really proved and reinforced that those issues are not at the heart of these relationships. UAE and Bahrain and now others have chosen peace with the Jewish state of Israel. Um, And I read, I read this morning that, um, ABZ, the uh, UAE foreign minister, Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, had a call with Secretary Blinken. And in the readout of the call, his comment was the Abraham Accords peace agreement holds hopes for the region's peoples to live in peace and stability in a way that ensures sustainable development. I just think the statement is so perfect. I, I actually wish our own government was, uh, was putting out similar statements. Simone, of course, the the rocket attacks coming from Gaza into Israel are linked to Hamas. Hamas is funded by Iran. How much should we view the current conflict as a kind of a proxy battle between Iran and Israel? Thank you for that question. That's a really important question. Yes, Hamas is uh, armed, trained, uh, funded by Iran. It's one of Iran's many proxies in the region. Uh, certainly, given the fact that we, we the United States, are in this kind of ongoing discussion over a potential new nuclear deal, which I think we all believe is coming, I think all of these things are related. So there's a lot of pressure being put on us through Israel, I think. Um, in order to to get the Iranians the best possible deal, but I think what is what we're also seeing is a lot of internal uh, political drama playing out through some of this violence. So, for example, there's supposed to be a Palestinian election, which Abbas. Uh, decided to hold on. Many people believe it's because his polling was so bad compared to Hamas. It was clear he was going to lose. So instead of going forward, he just created some violence in Jerusalem and then used that as an excuse for uh, for not moving for- forward with the election. Similarly, uh, y- you know, the Israelis have now had four rounds of elections, I believe, are now headed to five. And uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes maneuvering there as well, given that there are these open hostilities where, you know, 30 over 3,500 rockets have now been shot into Israel. Uh, multiple Israelis as well as Palestinians have been killed in this process. You know, the, the deals that were transpiring behind the scenes among different Israeli political parties have sort of fallen apart now. And uh, it looks like as a result, they are headed for a fifth election. And 
against all odds, many people always say this, never count BB out. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is, is, uh, has lived to fight another day. So these are all, I think, all of these factors are in play and have contributed to the situation um, that is unfolding before us. So it's, it's really, it, it's so complicated because it's not just one thing. It's many, many things that are all coalescing at the same time. Um, it's a very dynamic, fluid situation, unfortunately, very violent as well. Simone, you brought up the negotiations in Vienna between the U.S., the P5 country, the other P5 countries, Germany and Iran. What is, uh, what's your assessment of how the Biden administration has been doing in those uh, negotiations, some of the kind of preliminary messages we've seen out of that, and how how specifically should they perhaps be recalibrating or not recalibrating based on what we're seeing between Israel and the Palestinians? Uh, well, perhaps you will not be surprised to hear me say that uh, I do not believe that they are doing a good job in these negotiations based on the messaging that is coming out of them. Uh, on both sides, it looks as though all of the um, all of the different um, levers that we had created uh, in the Trump administration have sort of been left behind. Um, I think if they had wanted to, there were a lot of of things that could have been used during these negotiations. For example, the Houthi designation, which they, the Biden administration just took off the table. Uh, immediately after taking office. I think that was one of the many tools that they could have used to negotiate something. But instead, it looks increasingly like uh, there are going to be a number of the designations uh, that we set up that are going to be taken down. And uh, I was reading yesterday that uh, Iranian oil fields are uh, expecting increased activity. They're they're getting ready to ramp up their production, and that's because uh, they believe they're going to soon be open for business. Well, how is it that since we've established now uh, that Hamas is a great beneficiary of uh, Iranian funding, um, how is it that while Israel is our ally? we are sort of opening the floodgates for Iran in these Vienna negotiations to be able to take, uh, to take huge sums of, of money by all accounts. And uh, we must assume be able to provide them to proxies like Hamas and, and the Houthis for that matter. It's, it's very, very troubling. And I believe has contributed to the unrest that we're seeing in the region right now and the, the uh, increase in violence. Simone, let me ask you also about Lebanon, uh, where Hezbollah reportedly has, uh, at least I've seen some reports, up to 100,000 rockets. They're clearly watching what's going on between Hamas and Israel. How concerned are you about perhaps a follow-on conflict after this one between Israel and Hezbollah? I think we saw uh, there were, I believe, six rockets uh, that that failed to enter uh, Israel, but they were launched from Lebanon. Uh, they impacted inside of Lebanon as well. Um, I think there is a there is a great possibility for another front uh, of this conflict to open up. I I just would frame it. These are not these groups might be separate, but they all are under the same Iranian umbrella. So when we are, we're looking at this conflict, 
the, the way that I think about it, it's not Israel versus Hamas, Israel versus Hezbollah, it's Israel versus Iran. And Iran has many different, you know, the Iranian uh, octopus, if you will, has many different tentacles. But uh, fundamentally, that's, uh, that's who's calling the shots at the end of the day, because that's who's providing the funding and the training and some of the uh, more skilled personnel. So I think Lebanon, Lebanon's headed off a cliff. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but they are in extremely dire economic straits. There's, there's no bailout coming. They, they're, they're so far in the hole and their leadership is so unwilling to change the status quo because they personally are benefiting from it. So it, it is, you know, this failed state status is we're watching it happen now. Unfortunately, it's, it's incredibly tragic um, for those of us who've, you know, have had so much respect for Lebanon, love visiting Beirut, you know, beautiful country and, and beautiful people, but it's uh, it's a very tragic situation. So in these in these sort of failed state scenarios, these groups, these armed militant groups, these terrorist groups, have increasing power, and and we've seen this happen now over decades, where Hezbollah is really meaningfully pulling the strings of the Lebanese government. And I think there is a likelihood that another front could open up. It's um, it's important to note that. The Israeli response to this recent round of rocket attacks from Hamas, um, we'll have to see what their internal assessment is of how effective Israel has been at pushing back and restoring deterrence. I think there will be quiet if the assessment is, wow, the Israelis pushed back a lot harder than we thought. You know, we, we were degraded to a much larger degree than we anticipated. We're going to have to take a knee, you know, restock, reload. Of course, uh, Iranian funding will be incredibly important for that. And Hezbollah will learn as well. You know, they're sitting and watching all of this and taking notes. Last question, kind of our exit question for you. What's your prognosis for a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians at this point? It looks a little bleak right now. There have been ongoing disagreements over settlements. There have been peace initiatives over the last 20 years that haven't, uh, that have kind of either gone right up to the line and failed or kind of failed in the starting blocks. Where does this concept of a two-state solution go from here? I think in order to achieve a two-state solution, the Palestinians writ large, not, that's the Gaza Palestinians and the Gazans and the, and the uh, West Bank Palestinians, they need new leadership. Their current leadership is corrupt. They're, like, as we discussed, closely tied to Iran. They, do they have the best interests of the Palestinian people at heart? I don't believe they do. So, uh, you know, to me, there is no hope when you look at the current leadership. You know, Hamas part of its charter is includes the destruction of Israel. So uh, how, how can there be a two-state solution when both, you know, PA, Fatah, whatever you want to call them, and, Gaza, and uh, Hamas refuse to acknowledge uh, the Jewish state of Israel and uh, are still committed to its destruction? You can't have a meaningful dialogue under those conditions. And that's been the situation for decades. That's 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 why the Abraham Accords went forward, because these other these uh, Sunni Arab states wanted a relationship with Israel and realized, look, you know, the Palestinians are intransigent. They are not going to move off of this position and everybody else is suffering. The problem is the Palestinian people are the ones who are suffering from this, while 
you know, Abbas has enriched himself significantly with his palaces and private planes and all the rest of it. Um, it it's it's a really tragic situation. And, and I, I agree with you. A two-state solution today is is hard to, it's hard to imagine. But I think in the future, if there is new, if there is new leadership, that's not Hamas, uh, that's maybe younger and has a different mindset, you know, I would like to be optimistic. But it's right now, it's very hard to see. I agree. All right, Simone, thank you. Thank you very much. Closer to home, there are several slow boil crises happening in Central and South America. COVID-19 has erased recent GDP gains in the Northern Triangle. Two hurricanes destroyed infrastructure and livelihoods. And political corruption has weakened political systems and allowed the drug trade to flourish. Uh, So Les, I actually want to go to you first, uh, because President Biden has asked for $861 million in foreign assistance to Central America. So it's about a 70% increase from fiscal year 21. President Trump cut funding in the final two years in office. Um, But can foreign aid really make a difference long term if it keeps swinging back and forth with political party? There's a bunch of ways to answer that question, Grant. First of all, uh, in the long run, foreign assistance can make a difference if it's done the right way. In the short run, it's difficult to address a crisis situation like the one we're dealing with. Uh, And I think one of the things we should also remember is that presidents themselves don't always have total control over foreign assistance programs. Congress plays a huge role in the way our foreign assistance dollars are distributed, in particular in Central America for all of the headlines President Trump got during his administration for making various uh, diktat on how that money would be spent. It was actually Congress that decided there would be certain conditions for the spending of the money first, including a whole series of thresholds and standards and hoops that that money would have to get over and through before it could be spent, that it almost made the Trump decision immaterial. So one of the things that is consistent between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is that you've got a Congress that's very involved in deciding how foreign assistance dollars are spent. Congress takes a tough line on issues like rule of law, democracy, and human rights in Central America. It makes it difficult to do certain programs there. Yes, we should be looking at root causes of what is going on in the region and why so many folks are trying to come to this country, but we should also have a policy that is clear and apolitical. And we need we need to take our own domestic politics out of the situation, stop uh, deciding whether it's a crisis or not a crisis, realize that there's a very real humanitarian aspect of what's going on here, and clearly communicate what U.S. policy is to folks in the region and people who live around the border. Uh, and, I, and frankly, I didn't see that from the last administration, and I'm not seeing it from this administration either. So, Simone, one of the conversations around aid is always the conditions by which uh, we we give out this money. And I think specifically in, in Central America, one of the conversations around whether uh, we should tie this to corruption. Um, you know, El Salvador, uh, the El Salvadoran legislator replaced five members of the Constitution Constitutional Court and the Attorney General. Uh, Guatemala is refusing to swear in a new judge because of corruption, uh, his work fighting corruption. You know, should we be basing our foreign aid on uh, corruption issues? Or does that leave a gap for China to come in and really play an even larger influence in some of these countries? Well, Grant, we should be tying our aid to our national security. That is the point of Uh, of our provision of human aid, or that should be. I mean, I think China will kind of slither in no matter what. Um, And yes, 
you know, China feeds on corrupt governments. So there's a sort of, uh, there's a, a sort of perfect storm in that sense. But, you know, uh, the language, for example, that we use in the Trump administration that I know our USAID and our aid organizations use was that our efforts specifically in Central America were linked to finding ways for people to remain home. And that was sort of the national security uh, issue is, you know, all of these people flooding our borders that we don't have the capacity for, um, you know, we want to see economic growth in Central America. So all of those people don't want to come here. They want to stay in in their home countries and improve them. China doesn't offer that at all. And that's one of the primary differences, I think. Um, and that's, in my view, a compelling difference. But the issue now is, is that, you know, China's in there no matter what this administration does. They're already there. Um, but, you know, the American dream is, is real to them. And their governments are dealing with the blowback from, from the U.S. Uh, with no one from America really helping with solutions. So, of course, China's in there. And it's going to be, it's going to be really challenging given the fact that we've we are continuing to stoke these flames and create an environment where there is no hope in those countries we're not we're not helping to provide that hope and so the only chance that some of these people has is is to have is to come come north um which is something in my view we should continue to to try to dissuade in in many different uh many different ways so Rob, you're you're our homeland guy. You know, does does thinking about it in the way that Simone was suggesting, where we sort of focus on um, sort of keeping them there and growing the economic uh, viability of staying in the Northern Triangle, the right approach, or should we think about it as a as a sort of a different paradigm? What what do you think from your homeland perspective? Yeah, uh, thanks, Grant. Fantastic question, and I think the answer is all of the above. Um, we have to address the push factors of migration. We have to address the pull factors of migration. The Afghan conversation. We spent 20 years there trying to reform a nation uh, into a Jeffersonian democracy in our own image, right? We're sort of doing the same thing in our own backyard in Latin America. Um, and we tie our federal assistance across not only Latin America, South America, but the world uh, to these overarching, grandiose ideas of human rights and decorruption and all that sort of great things. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying these goals and objectives aren't worthwhile. I think that we need to take a more stepwise approach in our um, support overseas, that when we recognize that what we identify as corruption is just a way of life in a, in a culture, and we wish to help that culture and move it along, I think we need to take a more incremental approach uh, and accept that there is you know, some corruption going on in the government and work towards a long-term goal. That would require, as Simone noted, tying our foreign assistance to national security strategy and a strategy should be longer than a two-year congressional cycle. And that's very difficult for us to get across our own uh, short American political minds. But yes, we, we definitely need to be concerned about the push factors, the economic and environmental factors that are going on down there. We should be investing in um, production capacity. You know, we're talking a lot of onshoring stuff in the past year uh, since the COVID pandemic. How about nearshoring it into places that can use a an economic injection like the Northern Triangle? 
Yeah. So Rob, you answered another question I had, which was about whether or not this kind of emergency mindset, you know, whenever we see a a caravan of migrants or like a big crush at the border, we have kind of uh, a bunch of news cycles about it. And then Congress kind of steps in, but, but how do we avoid that emergency um, perception? How do we, how do we make policy that's longer than that two-year time window? So the, the emergencies are real. Uh, we have to be able to respond to those. We have to be able to take immediate action to address. We can't control when a hurricane or a mudslide affects, you know, a community in the, in the Northern Triangle and forces a migration of, of thousands of people. So we've got to be able to adjust and adapt to those emergent situations. Um, but what we should be doing in the long term, working with the executive branch and the Congress, is setting a projection of 10 years, 15 years out, what we want our neighborhood to look like. This is not a Monroe Doctrine. This is taking into account the fact that these other countries are sovereign and they have citizens who are concerned about their own well-being. But we need to make a national commitment to supporting our neighbors and being good neighbors not trying to go in and you know create banana republics, which we have a history of doing, but investing and and in, in an open and transparent way with these folks, uh, with you know Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, you name it, up and down Central America, and in being good, committed, long-term neighbors, not just interested in short-term um, mitigation of a of an emergent problem. So Les, I'd be interested in your take. Uh, I I think Rob's connection between um, Afghanistan, our conversation about Afghanistan, our conversation about Central America is is very apt. You know, both have a kind of economic incentive to continue to produce um, drugs, whether that be coca or opium. And I wonder what you think we could do from the U.S. to change those uh, economics so that, you know, the drug trade doesn't continue to define our relationship with the Northern Triangle? Well, I think this is something that has frustrated our government for a very long time. Uh, Our war on drugs, while uh, on a lot of levels it's important uh, we continue to to fight this battle, uh, has not had great success, whether it's in Latin America or Eurasia or what have you, simply because people can make a lot of money selling drugs to the United States. Uh, I don't personally think that total legalization is the answer. Uh, I think that's a, a little bit of a dream palace. Uh, on the other hand, uh, quick economic development in the regions that produce illegal narcotics is not going to happen. It could happen over the long term. We need to engage uh, these areas consistently, coherently, with a view towards the long run. Uh, that's true in Latin America. I think it's true in Afghanistan and uh, elsewhere in that region that we need uh, to focus less on the immediate crisis and more on long-term development. We need to promote the rule of law. We need to be promoting democracy. Uh, it doesn't have to be a democracy that looks like ours. Every country has their own Jefferson and Washington. Uh, we need to we need to have a little bit more flexibility in our comprehension of what that looks like. Uh, but I think it it argues in favor of U.S. engagement generally around the world. We cannot sit back behind walls or behind nostrums of we're better than they are or anything like that and pretend that things that happen in the rest of the world don't impact us. We're 
uh, 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's economy, things that happen in other countries affect us. They're always going to. It behooves us to be involved and work to defend our interests, and we should do it over the long term. I know that's not a very good answer for a program right now, Grant, but I think it uh, it does perhaps uh, help with our mindset about what is doable. No, I, I think that's really important. And I think it ties really well to your point, Simone, where we should be driven by sort of our national security strategy, our like long-term national security strategy. And I wonder where the idea of being driven by that long-term national security strategy and Les's idea of engagement kind of uh, meet or diverge when it comes to a place like uh, Colombia, where there have been protests recently around potential tax code changes. There have been an influx of migrants in Venezuela. You know, none of those things implicate the U.S. directly. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, there are a bunch of uh, issues stemming from that um, in, in a form of national security problem for the U.S. So how should we engage with a situation like that that isn't necessarily, you know, a next two, three-year problem, but could be a 10, 15-year problem. Well, I'm, I'm happy to jump in, Grant. I, I think it's mindful. I think we need to be mindful of, of the Syria example, where successive administrations basically decided that U.S. interests weren't directly implicated in the collapse of Syria and it turning into a, a failed state and almost total chaos. And yet, with millions of refugees internally displaced, a humanitarian crisis that's almost unimaginable for us, uh, it has impacted European politics. It's impacted our stature in the region. It's brought Russia and Iran more into Middle Eastern affairs. These things implicate our interests and our values. So we can't, while we don't have a necessarily a dog in the fight over protests in Colombia, over their immigration you know, issues with Venezuela, we cannot ignore what's going on in Venezuela. We have to deal with it. Our interests will ultimately be implicated. We should be involved in working to find solutions, even if it's at the diplomatic level, the development level, or you know, as a last resort, boots on the ground. Uh, those, those are things we need to be mindful of. Our interests are global, and, and these things are going to come back and affect us. Simone, you get the last word. Uh, I I agree, Lester, with uh, with everything you said. I, I thought that was great. I uh, I I also uh, uh, just to sort of jump on the bandwagon. Um, you know, we've we've partnered. Look, I, I have a long background in um, special operations, and I remember you know, 15 years ago, people were bemoaning the fact that we weren't focused enough on. Uh, Southcom, the Southcom AOR, and that the uh, special forces teams that normally would go there and, you know, do training exercises and whatnot, were getting pulled to do Afghanistan rotations and weren't spending enough time, you know, developing the relationships that we needed them to develop. And that in the future, this, we would regret this. I think now, in terms of what we're seeing in, in Colombia, I agree with you. We This is incredibly concerning because the activities that are ongoing in Venezuela with the involvement of the Russians, the involvement of the Iranians, who are closest, who, who are closest friends uh, right next door that would work with us to mitigate the effects of, of all of these activities, the Colombians. So uh, given the close uh, partnership that we've shared with them for many, many years, the the training, the, all of the things that we've provided over the years to help them 
uh, to overcome their insurgency that, that they had uh, for many, many years. Um, I think that they expect, they must have some level of expectation in terms of what we will do for them now that they are in need. And I hope that we rise to the occasion. I know we're supposed to be pivoting and However, realities don't always allow us to to do (laughs) what we wanted to do. I mean, look at CENTCOM. Everyone's been wanting to leave CENTCOM for such a long time. And and, uh, as as people rightly note, you know, the enemy has a say. So perhaps in this case, it's not a specific enemy, but it's it's just, you know, chaos and unrest. And uh, it's uh, it's a very concerning situation. uh, And I and I hope that the administration does focus aid on our enduring national security interests and and uh, starts providing Colombia with the support that it needs uh, in order to sort of calm things down at this point. Great. So let's turn to our final segment of the day, which is uh, what you're following in the news that might be undercovered. Um, Les, let's start with you. What are you looking at this week? Vaccine diplomacy grant. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the administration finally woke up and realized there was a huge crisis in India and uh, kind of opened the taps on U.S. assistance there. That was a good thing. It was a few days late, but it was a good thing. Today, this week, the president announced uh, he's going to send 60 million vaccines abroad. That's a good start. There's a huge need around the world for vaccines uh, and vaccine delivery and then testing and some of the other stuff that we do to help people deal with the COVID crisis. Uh, The U.S. needs to play a leading role here. China and Russia have been eating our lunch a little bit on vaccine diplomacy, and that's just plain wrong. So it's good that we're responding. And in the just in the past few days, as I've been watching stuff in Washington, I've seen two Republican senators call for a Marshall Plan for response to the coronavirus. That's a great sign that this is a bipartisan thought that we should be aggressive in responding to this. It's going to be expensive, but hopefully it's a one-time cost where we can really help countries get past this thing because it's going to hit the developing world now and in the very near future in a way that was that's going to be even uglier than it hit us. And so we need to be there. We need to help folks around the world deal with this. This is a great role we can play. We're the best in the world at it, and it's our job, and we should do it. Rob, what are you following this week? Well, here, here, we are the best in the world, and we can do it, right, Lester? Let's get that vaccine out to everybody that needs it, and Marshall plan up. Uh, amen. <laughs> Thanks, Grant. Uh, so just a quick reminder for everybody's calendars, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the most recent Armenian-Azerbaijani clash. And for some reason, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan publicly tweeted that uh, he had talked to both heads of state in the past 24 hours, and I believe on the same day. Uh, so I'm just curious what the thread is there. What is there a connection or is it just... Uh, what, was it uh, time to call the A's on the uh, on the phone roster? Uh, just want to watch that space a little bit and see if uh, anything's boiling over there. Recall what these two countries are sandwiched between Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And there's just a complex cauldron of issues and demographic questions and and resources and all sorts of things that play into that. So I'll be watching that for the next week or so. Thanks, Grant. Simone, what are you looking at this week? Uh, I continue to watch uh, this emerging story of the Havana Syndrome, uh, as it's called. Uh, The Havana Syndrome uh, is is so-called because uh, it involves health incidents that first came to light a couple of years ago when U.S. Embassy staff in Havana started experiencing these kind of unusual symptoms 
beginning with a sudden onset of loud noises that has led to brain injuries. And uh, over time, increasing number of U.S. personnel, CIA folks, uh, diplomats, uh, U.S. uh, defense military people have all reported similar symptoms in different places all around the world, including here in the uh, D.C. metropolitan area. Um, These symptoms, um, I mean, this is real. I can say I I actually, this was something that I worked on when I was in government. So I I know this is very real. Uh, It's now was something uh, that was very close hold for a long time. People are starting to talk about it now. And uh, I think that's a really good thing. I also think uh, it looks like there's a, a, a strong degree of seriousness behind it. Members of Congress are commenting and saying they want more action and different, uh, government agencies are now, you know, standing up cells to focus on this. I think there's some discussion about, is it a directed energy weapon? Is it a a radio frequency weapon? It'll be interesting to learn uh, what they come up with over time. And, uh, but I think there's a strong suspicion as to who is uh, executing these types of operations. What will we do about that? How will the U.S. respond to that? What sorts of weapons are are we developing? Is this a new kind of a new uh, front in a in a cold war? For example, it would be it will be very interesting to continue to watch the space and see how it develops. This week, I'm following the moves in Moscow to silence radio for Europe Radio Liberty. On May 14th, Russia sent Bayless to inform RFERL about the beginning of enforcement actions against the company for failing to pay fines. These fines were levied because RFERL refused to put a disclaimer on their reports that they were a foreign agent. America should stand up for journalists speaking truth to power abroad, especially in countries like Russia that desperately need these independent voices. We are excited to discuss these issues with RFERL's president, Jamie Fly, in early June. If you want to hear this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the NSI Live podcast feed and sign up for NSI's email list at nsi.gmu.edu. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Michelle Story for research, and Lester Munson for hosting. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.